Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you all here. Uh, and yes, for those of you who don't know me and are wondering who this guy was that forced you to stand up, uh, as you heard a moment ago from Jen there or from Pastor Jennifer, my name is Brian and I'm the senior pastor here. And as PJ reminded me during worship, you know, in, in showbiz, you should never compete with children or animals. Uh, so I'm sorry that you're stuck with me after having all the kids and all the fun. Um, but, you know, I know we will be okay. I do have one request for you this morning, though, uh, and this is a serious request. Uh, I need all y'all to be on your best behavior today uh, because my mother-in-law is in church this morning. <laughs> And uh, we're thrilled to have mom over from South Africa. Uh, mom, don't believe a thing they say during the coffee time. And you guys just don't believe a thing she says. And we'll all be okay. And we'll have a great time. So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. As we, uh, as we continue on, you know, I was out in the stores this past week. And just kind of strolling through a store and, you know, that had random music playing in the background, as most stores do. Uh, it didn't really give much of a thought to it until that well-known song that we all know came on, Joan Osborne's song, What If God Were One Of Us. And, and you know that song where Joan sings about what if God was kind of just this person like us and, and how would we engage? Uh, but there's this line in there along the lines of, what would you do if you were faced with all of God's glory and you had the opportunity to ask him a question? What would you ask God? Uh, and I kind of found myself in the middle of that store sort of thinking to myself, isn't this fascinating? You know, we live in a world where more and more people do affirm belief in some sort of God. You know, 20 years ago, everyone thought that, no, the world was going to become more and more atheist and that people had done away with God. And, and that's really just not true. The overwhelming majority of the globe's population believes there is some sort of God. And most of us, certainly those who have that belief, really do have that desire. How awesome would it be to be able to go up to God and ask God my question? I'm pretty sure every single person in this room has multiple questions they have for God. You know, what would it be like if God spoke to us? Well, this is the beauty. And the reality is that God does speak to us. Our God is a communicating God. And He longs to simply talk with us. And so over the, the season of summer, we've been journeying through the series simply titled, Let's Talk. And it's the invitation from God when God says to us, let's talk. I know there are things in your hearts. I know there are things in your mind. I know there are concerns and cares. Let's just talk about those. Let's engage in, in this relationship and, and not have it distant or one-sided. Let's communicate together. And so beginning at the, the first week of summer, we started looking at the various prayers of Jesus. Those various times when Jesus simply talks with his Abba Father and communicates with God and, and models for us how to come into this place of talking to God. And how we can come into that place of not only talking to God, but hearing from God. 
And so Jesus kind of models, we begin by calling God Father. In fact, Abba, Father. There's that intimacy. This, uh, you know, God is, is relational. God loves us. God is intimate with us. And he invites us to call out to him as Abba, Father. And Jesus also models that he prayed, believing that he would be heard. He had no doubt that when he spoke to his father, his father would hear him and his father would speak back to him. And so he models this for us. And then, of course, last week, uh, Pastor Jennifer, our, uh, Pastor Hannah, sorry, our youth pastor, spoke to us about praying for our enemies and how Jesus models, even as we talk to God, sometimes the reality is we have these people that we struggle with. And we have these enemies, these people who, who would love to see us come to harm. How do we engage? How do we respond to that? And we see from the model of Jesus, we pray for them. You know, next week, I'm looking forward to next week because next week we're looking at how to pray in great joy. And next week is going to be an incredible service, I believe, because next week is our communion service. But after the service or after communion, we're going to spend a time of prayer out in the front of the church simply praying for those people who want to come forward for prayer. And specifically for those who want to pray for healing as they engage with, with whatever they're going through. And I know that as much as that's going to be painful and difficult, and, and I know there are going to be tears flowing, it's going to be this prayer of joy. Because why? God is a relational God. God longs to connect and communicate with us. So what are we going to look at today? Well, today is probably one of the most challenging, if not the most scary prayers in all the Bible. It's the prayer that Jesus prays in Mark chapter 14, and in a couple of moments we'll go through some of Mark chapter 14, but it, Jesus finds himself praying in great distress. How do we engage with God in that moment of great distress? I don't know where I heard it said, but I remember many, many years ago hearing somebody say, the anticipation of death is worse than death itself. The anticipation of death is worse than death itself. And really what they're getting at is that if you know you're about to die, if death is right there, it's the anticipation of it that seems so much worse. Now, I can't speak with authority on that. I've never really truly anticipated death, except the one time I went skydiving. And I remember sitting in the door of the plane, looking down at these tiny little dots on earth 3,000 feet below me. And I was screaming like a banshee. I did not want to get out of that plane. And I'm convinced to this day that the instructor actually just pushed me out. And for those first few seconds, I thought, here it is, I'm going to go and meet my maker until the canopy opened up. And then it was actually a really great experience. So I don't know what it is like to expect or anticipate death coming. But I know that there are some of you here this morning, and perhaps some of you online watching us who have this reality. Perhaps you've had a diagnosis from the doctor that is certainly not positive where a medical professional said, we don't, we don't really know what the outcome could be. And we don't really have many more options. We're just trying at this point. And we know that you better start making peace and, and kind of you know, saying goodbye to loved ones. And so I know some of you have that on your horizon. I know that there are many of you here this morning who maybe aren't facing a literal death, 
But you're facing a death of sorts. Perhaps it's, it's the death of a relationship. The death of a marriage where it's, it's in those last throes and, and you kind of just have no hope of what might come. Perhaps it's a financial prospect of death. A lack of employment, a lack of income. There's something, a significant change in your life on the horizon, and it terrifies you because you do not want it to happen. So what do we do in a time like that? What do we do when we find ourselves facing an unknown future, or, or in a sense, a known future that we don't want to experience, that we don't want to go through? What do we do in those moments? Well, we do what Jesus did, and we pray. If you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to Mark chapter 14. I'm going to read from verse 32. It will be on the screen behind me as well, uh, so you can read it there as well. Mark chapter 14, reading from verse 32. They went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter and James and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell down to the ground and prayed that if it possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. You know, when Luke records this prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before his arrest and crucifixion and death, when Luke records this in Luke twenty-two forty-four. He says, and being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. We sang that in our opening song this morning. Praying in anguish, praying in distress. You know, that word anguish, if you look it up in the dictionary, speaks about being in acute distress or being in excruciating suffering. You know, whenever I read that and I see that word excruciating, I'm reminded of the interesting sidebar notes about excruciate. Is the, that word excruciate derives from the Latin word excruciatus, which literally means out of the cross or from the cross. So when we talk about something being excruciating, we've immediately got an image of dying on a cross. We've immediately got that image of a painful torture, of suffering beyond compare. We have an image of Jesus Christ. And one of the synonyms for excruciating is anguish. What do we do when we're in that time? And this is where Jesus was. And Jesus 
praise. And this is why I said a moment ago, this is probably the scariest prayer in all of Scripture because of how Jesus models for us and what Jesus says. He doesn't kind of just give this fancy sounding thing. He just prays the simple and humble prayer and he models for us how should we pray. How do we communicate? How do we talk with God when we're in great distress and when we are in anguish? And Jesus models what it looks like to simply surrender, to be completely obedient to what God is doing. In fact, what Jesus models for us is the lesson that, uh, that well, sorry, it's the summary of his life. And what I mean by the summary of Jesus' life is in John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says to his disciples, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him what he is doing. Jesus did nothing out of his own accord. Jesus' life, his daily approach to whatever came before him was simply to say, what is my father doing in this situation? And as soon as I see my heavenly father at work, I'm going to join in there and I'm going to do what he does. Jesus lived in humble obedience to the will of his heavenly father. And so he prays, your kingdom come, your will be done. And he teaches us that we should pray like this. And he doesn't show that or he doesn't give that just because that sounds like the right thing to do. Jesus uses those words because that's how he lived. You know, in order for us to pray, your kingdom come, we have to be willing to pray, my kingdom go. And Jesus understood this. If we read back in the Old Testament, there's this image that Jeremiah has in, in Jeremiah chapter 18 and if you want to, you can go read Jeremiah chapter 18 on your own accord. But basically, God takes Jeremiah to a potter's house. And Jeremiah is kind of standing there watching this potter work with clay. And as he's working with this clay, slowly he forms a vase or he forms something. And at some point, the potter decides, you know what, I don't really like the look of this. And he literally just squashes it down. And he starts doing something else. And God says to Jeremiah, I am the potter, you are the clay. I get to decide what I'm doing. You respond, and you allow me to do that. And this is how Jesus lived. But yet you and I struggle, don't we? Oh, we struggle with this idea of your will be done. In fact, most of us are like two-year-old toddlers. Two-year-old toddlers are awesome most of the time. They're just, they're, they're the, the quintessential existentialist. A two-year-old lives in the moment, the here and now, this is life. And they go at full tilt. And they're as happy as anything if they're eating candy or watching cartoons or playing with their toys. But as soon as you take said two-year-old and go and try and bathe them or put clothing on them, if that's something they don't want to do, they will let you know. And they will scream and they will fuss and they will kick up a fit as though they've been sentenced to death because this is not what they want to do. And sometimes we approach God like that because really, just like those two-year-olds, we're egocentric narcissists. It's all about me. 
as long as I'm happy, as long as I'm comfortable, as long as I'm doing what I want to do, then I'm okay talking to God. But if it looks like God has other plans, if it looks like God has something else in store, oh, well, then we challenged. And then we go, no, God, I don't want that. And we pray a very different prayer to the one that Jesus models for us. And this is why it is such a scary prayer. It's, it's even more scary if we think about it, because Jesus in that garden of Gethsemane knew exactly what was coming. You know, when we pray, sometimes we think we know what's coming, but we're not, we're not 100% sure. Jesus knew. Jesus knew he was about to be arrested, that he would stand in a, a sham trial and be mocked, that he would be beaten and spit on, and then that he would be taken out and crucified, and that he would die. He knew this was coming. And this is why he prays that the Father would take it away, take this cup from me. But he knows this has to happen, and so he says, Not my will, yours be done. That's, that's the situation that Jesus is in. If you go ahead and read that passage of Scripture from beginning through to the end, Jesus knows what's coming, and, and Jesus understands this physical torture that he's about to experience. Every now and then when we preach at Easter and we speak about the crucifixion, that's when we unpack just how terrible a crucifixion really is. A crucifixion was designed to inflict the maximum amount of pain and have the person die as slowly as possible. That's what a crucifixion is. And so Jesus knows this is coming. And he, he has this mental anguish because he doesn't want to go to that even though he's at the very doorstep of his mission. He's at the very reason they, that he came. And so the, that flesh part of Jesus cries out, Oh God, if it's possible, please take this away. But the God part, the deity knew this was the plan. This is why I came. And so he prays, Not my will be done, but yours be done. And this prayer of Jesus, it's, it's so simple but yet so difficult to grasp. It's so simple for us. It's really just a couple of words. You know, sometimes we have this idea that if we come to God and we pray, we have to pray long, convoluted prayers. We have to use deep theological words, and, and we have to ramble on and on, and Jesus has something to say about that elsewhere. And so Jesus models we come to God with a short and simple and humble prayer that gets to the heart of the matter. But maybe that's why it makes this prayer so, so scary. is because of how simple it is. We can read it and understand it straight away. And Jesus prays, not my way, not my will, but your way, God. Your will, Abba Father. Like I said a moment ago, in order to pray, your kingdom come, I have to pray, my will, be, uh, my kingdom gone. If I want to pray, your will be done, I have to pray, my will be ignored. I have to give up my kingdom. I have to give up my desires. I have to give up my plans and the outcome that I want to see happen. You know, I spoke about the situations that each one of us might be facing right at the beginning. What is it you're looking at? What is that prospect on the horizon that just scares you, that terrifies you, that you're in anguish over? Is it a health issue? Is it marriage? Is it work? Relationships? What might it be? You know, when we come to those things, we pray, God, let it happen this way. 
God, here's my situation. I know you're in control. I know you can do something. This is what I want you to do. And Jesus doesn't model that. Jesus says, God, what you want, that's what you need to do. What your will is in this situation, that's what you need to do. And so even though Jesus knew the answer and we don't, sometimes if we did know the answer, we certainly wouldn't pray because we don't like the answer and we don't want it to go that way. You see, when we pray what Jesus prayed, when we follow this model, literally what we're saying is, God, it doesn't matter what I want or even what I prefer. Ultimately, I want you to do what you will do. And I guess we, we aren't willing to pray that. Perhaps because it's scary. Perhaps some of us don't even mean it. Perhaps because we're afraid of what might happen. Remember that old missionary song, Oh, please, Lord, don't send me to Africa? You know, I used to sing, Please, Lord, don't send me to Canada. <laughs> but we aren't willing to pray the prayer because we're afraid of what might come. It, it, what is God calling for me? What does God want me to do in a situation? We might pray for children and, and never receive our own. Perhaps God's will is that we foster children. We might pray for a spouse and never receive a spouse because God's will might be that we remain single. We might pray that the church has other musicians and other people in the Sunday school when in fact God's calling us to step in and to help. We're afraid of praying those prayers because we don't know what God's going to do and, and we frankly are terrified and, and scared. God might call us to give up what we don't want to give up. God might call us to move away from home or to move away from our comfort. My brothers and sisters, I want to remind you that God always has the best in mind. Now, now don't hear the myth. I'm not saying the myth. There's a myth out there that says God's, the center of God's will is the safest place to be. I think the Apostle Paul would disagree with you. He lived in the center of God's will and he got beaten and whipped and shipwrecked and went hungry and naked and all sorts of things. No, being in the center of God's will is not the safest place to be. But it certainly is the best place to be. I love that image in C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, when, uh, when Lewis talks about Aslan, the God figure as this king. And they're off to go see Aslan, and, and one of the kids asks, is he safe? And of course, the little character goes, safe? Not at all. But he is good. And it's precisely because he's good that we can come to him. And my friends, when God calls us to follow this model of Jesus, to be able to say, God, not my will be done, not my kingdom come, we can only truly pray that when we trust and understand that God is good. And though the outcome might be death, I can still trust because God is good. Now, I wish I could say to you this morning that whatever you're facing, we're going to pray for and it'll be gone. I simply cannot do that because that's not what the scriptures teach us. That's not what Jesus models. All I can encourage you today, my friends, is to simply learn to trust and to pray like Jesus prayed. 
Say, God, not my will be done, but yours. Because I know that outcome is going to be good. What is it you're holding back from God? What is the prayer you're afraid to pray? I would encourage you to pray that His will be done, regardless of what that might entail. And if you are wondering, do I even trust God? Let me go back to that image of Jeremiah. To be in the hands of God and to let God mold and make and work at what He's doing because that will be far more beneficial for you and for the world around you as we walk in the center of God's will. Let's pray together. Jesus, there's a part of me that does not want to thank you for this prayer because of how scary it is, because of how challenging it is. The thought of facing death, of, of facing an unknown future, of facing a prospect that we do not want to face, and to be able to pray, not my will done, but yours, terrifies us. Perhaps this is why Jesus, in the middle of that, you said, the flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. God, I pray by your Holy Spirit, would you help us to learn to trust you that you are good, that you are doing something that we could never truly comprehend. And we will only be able to fully understand when we stand before you face to face. I suspect that when we stand before you face to face, the hundreds of questions that we have will dissolve away because we will understand. And the only thing we'll be able to do is worship and praise and thank you. But God, until such time, I know that each one of us will face anguish. We will face excruciating experiences. We will face things that we do not want to face. God, in that place, Jesus, help us to pray as you prayed. Not my will be done. But yours, O oh God. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.